This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Beatriz Ferreira. Here is an incredible story of a woman from a Mexican-American migrant farm-working family, traveling from place to place, season to season, picking crops with her family until she was 19. From these roots, Beatriz Ferreira becomes a lawyer defending the rights of those in circumstances from which she grew up. I started the interview by asking Beatriz to describe what it was like growing up as a migrant farmer. I was born in Nebraska, in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. And I grew up in different places because we were, my parents were migrant farm workers. My sisters were all born in different places. Uh, my other sister was born in Greeley, Colorado, so I spent time there. Another sister was born in Rodstown, Texas, which is way down south by Corpus Christi, Texas. And I was there. And then I have three younger sisters that were born uh, in the panhandle of Texas near Lubbock, Texas, uh, so I was also there, and at the age of 11, uh, we moved to New Mexico, to Roswell, New Mexico, mm-hmm. uh, and so then by 12, I, I I went to school in Roswell from the 12th, uh, from the 6th grade to the 12th grade, so I spent six years in and out of Roswell, because we also uh, would go out in the summer to do... Um, farm work in, in mostly California, picking potatoes and picking uh, grapes and uh, apricots, things like that. So why was so, it that you moved around so much? Well, we followed the harvest. You mm-hmm. know, you followed the harvest. So in Nebraska, my parents were picking red potatoes and sugar beets. Mm-hmm. And in uh, Colorado, we were picking things like green beans and tomatoes and uh, cucumbers. And in the South Texas, it was citrus fruit. In the panhandle of Texas, it was, it was cotton. And in California, it was mostly potatoes and uh, grapes and apricots. Mm. So we followed the different harvest seasons. Year after year? Year after year until I was about 14. And then after that, it was in the summers. Mm. In the summer, we would head out towards California after that. So, so we would spend summers in California. So the cycle changed once you were 14? Yes, because my father uh, eventually bought a little house in Roswell. Mm-hmm. And so we we became more established and stayed the school year in Roswell and then went off in the summertime. Mm-hmm. Now, were your parents born in the United States? My mother was born in Roswell. My father was born in Beeville, Texas. Mm-hmm. And my grandparents, uh, my paternal grandparents came from 
well, we don't know where my paternal grandparents came from. My maternal grandparents, my mother's parents, came from Mexico mm. uh, during the uh, Mexican Revolution, which was from 1910 to 1920. They crossed over in 1919 mm. and went up to Colorado, to Greeley, Colorado, to settle mm. there. And give me a little bit background of the situation with the Mexican Revolution and in the situation with your grandparents. Well, on my mother's side, my grandfather and my grandmother, they were married and had two children at the time the revolution in Mexico started in 1910. And they lived in the state of Chihuahua in Parral, which is where the heart of the revolution was. Mm-hmm. So normally on a, on, on a daily basis, it was either the, uh, the rebels who were led by um, Pancho Villa or Doroteo Arango was his real name, or the federalistas who were the federal troops for the government Mm -hmm. coming through the little ranches and one or the other side taking all the food and also recruiting people or men mostly for their side, whether they was kind of an involuntary draft. Mm -hmm. And so this got to be pretty, pretty bad to the point that my my grandfather, great-grandfather, decided he would leave and uh, try to take his sons and his children out of there. So my great-grandfather actually crossed the border before 1919. Mm-hmm. I think he crossed over about 1916 and um, uh, established himself in Lubbock, Texas, is what I understand, mm-hmm. and then began to send for his family. Um, eventually, my grandmother, my mother's mother, and my mother's father and two children two older ones, uh, were able to come across. So they left all their lands and their homes behind in Mexico mm. and brought what they could and came this way mm. eventually. Yeah. And did your great-grandparents and your grandparents and your parents all did the same kind of work? Well, yes. In Mexico, my grandfather owned owned his own land and sure. owned his branches and stuff. But here, because of the lack of English, right. Uh, they were not able to, uh, of course, they didn't own any land either. Mm-hmm. And so they were not able to, to do that. So so basically, they brought up, I understand my mother's mother brought sufficient money to buy a house in Greeley, Colorado, because she had a two-story house, I remember, mm-hmm. as a little girl going there. But they would go out and work in the fields primarily because that's about all the work they could get because of the lack of English, being able to speak English. And so um, they were kind of restricted to doing the field work. Mm-hmm. And that's how my parents ended up doing that eventually. Mm-hmm. And can you describe for me the work that you did those first 14 years? Yeah. You know, as a little girl, I remember even in Nebraska, I must, uh, I was just born there and then we left. And the next, the next memory I have is that I'm about, I was about three or four years old. And my father owned a truck at that time. And he used it for picking the, the sacks of potatoes and taking them to the potato cellars deep into the in the ground where they would store the potatoes for the winter. I remember he rigged the truck so that the gas would go very, very, uh, make the truck run very, very slow. And I would stand on top of the seat and maneuver the wheels of the truck. Oh my gosh. Uh, between the rows of the, of the potatoes, um, my father taught me how to do that <laughs> while my uncle and my father would be uh, in the back behind walking, tossing these uh, sacks of potatoes onto the truck. And then 
right before we would get to the end of the row, my father would jump in and I would scoot over to the passenger side and he would take over and turn the truck around and situate it between the rows. So basically it was the rows guiding the truck mm. and I pretended like I was driving the truck. <laughs> what a great that job. Was, <laughs> yeah, that was my first memory of working. And later on, as I grew older, um, you know, we participated in picking the cotton or um, picking the apricots or whatever, the potatoes, whatever it was. And I think, see, as a little girl, what we did, my sisters and I would, would run ahead of my parents when they were picking cotton, for example. And we would make little uh, little piles of cotton for them. We would take the cotton out of the cotton bolts and make piles for them to make it faster for them to load up their long sacks because the more cotton you picked, of course, the more money you made at the end of the day. Mm. So the, the little ones would usually run ahead and make piles of cotton for them and run ahead and make another pile. Mm. In California, probably was the most difficult work because by that time I was about 18 and um, we picked potatoes and California gets really hot. Mm. I mean, it gets really hot. So we woke up usually before the sun came up around 4.30 in the morning, went to the potato field. And when you pick potatoes, you, you, you actually, you wear a belt around your, you know, your waist that has two long, like, uh, little tiny pieces of wood that, that go down and, and have hooks, uh, at the, at the, at the, at the end of each, each of these little pieces of board because there you hook your, your burlap sack and you, and you throw this burlap sack between your legs and you bend down, and you begin to toss the potatoes into this bag. And so every so often you straighten up and you lift the bag so that potatoes go to the bottom of the bag. And we would pay, it paid 25 cents a bag, I remember, a potato sack, rather. And by the time um, you're dragging these uh, sacks full of potatoes uh, right before they're getting filled up, these hooks are digging into your thighs, and they would leave purple marks at the end of the day, you see, and your back was so sore when you got home. I can home. imagine. <laughs> we wanted to take a nice hot bath, and of course, sometimes there weren't bathtubs available, but uh, you wanted just to soak your bones. And this was at the age of 18, and you oh, felt okay. like you were 90 years old at the end of the day. <laughs> and how heavy would these bags get when they started to be full? Well, you take a burlap sack. Mm-hmm. Uh, a regular burlap sack. I don't know what it's, 25 pounds? I don't know okay. what they are. 25, 30 pounds? I don't know Jeez. what they are. Yeah. But when you're, when you're little, and I'm only 4'11", you see. Oh, jeez. And, uh, <laughs> so, but you got strong. You built strong uh, back. Yeah. You had a strong back. Mm-hmm. And you, and you developed strong upper arm muscles because you were having to pick these things up. And then, uh, when they were full, you would just kind of balance them and let them stand there. Because another uh, truck came by and picked up all the potatoes, mm-hmm. potato sacks. Mm-hmm. And you had to keep count of your potato sacks because then the, the contractor would come around and, and count the bags, the sacks for you, and that's how you got paid at the end of the day. Yes. But I, I used to earn about $65 a week. Mm-hmm. And that was a lot yeah. in those days. Mm-hmm. Now, describe your living conditions, because I got the impression from what you just said that you didn't always have the luxury of having a, being able to have a warm bath. You know, I, I wrote a story called The, the Boxcar, because at one time in Colorado, we lived in a boxcar, because that was 
the housing that was available, made available by the farmers. And there were two box cars, one next to each other. And behind the box cars was a uh, a corral of cows, cattle. They had cattle there. Cattle there. And it was very, I mean, the the uh, the odors were very strong. And of course, there was this attracted a lot of flies. <laughs> so I, I wrote the story, the box car for um for the Border Book Festival that we hold here every year. And, and, and read it before the, uh, emerging writers, the young writers, the youthful writers, so, so they could criticize my story. And they did a really good job of, of giving me, uh, good suggestions. But we lived in, at that, I think at that time I must have been about five or six years old. And I, we lived in tents and we lived under, uh, in a barn one time and we lived, um, by the rivers. We would camp out by the rivers uh, as we were traveling also. Um, my father had at one point uh, acquired a second truck, and one truck became like a mobile home. I mean, one truck had a mattress and a propane tank with a two-burner stove and dishes and everything, and, and that was like a, a house trailer, you know, mm-hmm. a movie trailer. <laughs> so we, we lived in that, and I actually kind of liked it at night because we'd pull over and we'd have this mattress there, and you'd lay there, and, and the top of the truck, you know, was open, mm-hmm. so you could see the stars at mm-hmm. night. And it was really nice, actually. Yeah. <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. So, and then other times we lived in a, maybe those uh, labor camps. But we didn't live there very long, because my father um, decided it wasn't too healthy, because a lot of children got very sick mm-hmm. from the bad water. And so he usually would find try to find a place away from the labor camp mm. if he could. They were very they were not very sanitary. Mm. My father was a pretty smart guy. Yeah, that sounds like it. At fourteen you're you had a, a more permanent residence yes. when you were fourteen? Yes, we, we settled in Roswell. Mm-hmm. And I think it was about thirteen or so, twelve, thirteen, but but uh we still got to, to work quite a bit but after 14, it slowed down, and we would go uh, more local mm-hmm. uh, in the on weekends, and then in the summertime we would go to California. Mm-hmm. So we became more uh, more stabilized. Mm-hmm. And then between 14 and 18, that was pretty much how it went. Yes, that's about how it went. Every summer we would take off to yeah. California. Yeah. And uh, 18 years was the last t- time I took off to California because. I was about to graduate from high school. Now, tell me about how you can go to school in a situation like that. Well, I remember going to many schools mm-hmm. when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Be- before th- before 14, I went to lots of different schools. Mm-hmm. And sometimes uh, we would stay maybe a month or two. Uh, sometimes we would stay maybe a couple of weeks, depending on the work. Uh, but my father always made sure we were in school at some point in time so that we were not uh, missing too much school if we could. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I remember I started school in the panhandle of Texas. And uh, at that time, we lived in a labor camp. And I don't think I went there my entire first grade, but the first year of my first grade. I spoke only Spanish at the time, so I had to repeat the first grade twice. So I started there, and then I went to another town, Seminole, Texas, and started there again in the first 
grade. And uh, so, so it just kind of would depend on where we were. Yeah. And but once I learned English and I learned to read, it was like I was a very fast learner. Mm-hmm. So it didn't really matter that I missed, you know, several weeks of school. I I would catch up really mm-hmm. fast. I see. So you picked up English in the sec by the second and third grade. Yes. Yeah. By my second year of first grade, because I was in first grade two years. I see. My yeah. second year in first grade, I picked up English. And yeah. then after that, it was like, go, go, go. Right. So at 18, you were ready to go off to college. Actually, 19. I graduated as, as, as I was turning Oh, right. Of course. Because I had stayed twice in the first grade. Right. So, yeah. uh, and I really didn't know I was, you know, what I was going to do. But in your senior year, you have these visiting college people that come to visit the seniors and try to recruit you to universities. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. That senior year, a, a representative from New Mexico State University came to talk to the seniors and left a bunch of applications on the table. And I filled one out. Even though I wasn't taking uh, college prep courses, I decided I would fill one out. And I got admitted as a, on a bunch of... Uh, with a bunch of deficiencies. I had conditions, you know, conditional admission, it was called. So I see. Because I didn't take enough math, and I didn't mm. take enough this and that. So. <laughs> yeah. But they led me in to New Mexico State. Mm-hmm. And it was a struggle the first semester. I made a 1.8, I think. Must have been a culture shock for you. Well, you know, I tell my son now, I, I used to have to carry a dictionary with me. To every class because I had no idea what these professors were saying half the time. Mm. And I would write these words phonetically and then I would try to go look for them and, and try to learn them. So my, uh, I just barely made it the first year mm. and I got put on probation. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. So, but what I did was that summer, I just took two easy courses <laughs> and made, I think I made an A and a B. And uh, brought my grade point back up to a 2.1 or something like that. <laughs> and I was back in there again. Mm-hmm. Back in the game. Yeah. So what were you majoring in? Well, I didn't... Uh, I changed my major almost every semester. Yeah. I, I mean, I started in, I think it was journalism, because I thought that was something I would like to do. Mm-hmm. And then I went into uh, education. Mm-hmm. And then I went into French. I stayed in French for like four semesters. Mm-hmm. And then I finally went into sociology and got a degree in sociology. Mm-hmm. And what did you do with that? Well, I got it. Actually, I was hired uh, right out of college by the Department of Labor, the Employment Security Commission from the state of New Mexico. And I learned the work so fast that they made me a trainer. They asked me to train other people. And then I met uh, my son's father, and we got married, and he had just come from Vietnam and, and went back into the military, so we ended up going to Germany for five years. Mm-hmm. My son was born, and in, in, uh, he was eight months old when we went to Germany, mm-hmm. and we were there from you know, 1971 to 1976. And during that time, I had I had a dream of following with my education and getting a master's. Mm-hmm. And it just happened that the University of Southern California started a master's at the time that I got there. Mm-hmm. So I enrolled and I completed a master's at the University of Southern California. So what was it like in Germany? 
wonderful. You loved it, huh? Uh, I loved it. Uh, well, my, my childhood dream, I remember at, at about 13, I think, was to travel the world. I mean, mm-hmm. that was my dream, was to travel the world and see the world and uh, just go see places. And so for me, that was perfect. I see. To be there for five years. Because mm-hmm. From there, I, I went to Russia. I went to Czechoslovakia. I went to oh Northern gosh. Africa. I went to, you know, uh, I mean, I went to Italy. I went to all over, every everywhere, as much as I could. Wow. And uh, I made use of my five years, and I traveled quite a bit. And got some good work when I was there. What kind of work? One of my one of my first jobs was uh, as a coordinator for Project Transition, which was a, a military program that was helping the soldiers that were coming out of the military during the Vietnam era to adjust to civilian life. So I had to go out and coordinate job training with the German economy, for example, Volkswagen and for the mechanics. So they could learn how to fix Volkswagens instead of fixing, you know, army tanks, military tanks. Um, and then they'd have an occupation to go back to when they got to the United States. So I did that, and I would coordinate all these training programs. And then after that, I, I finished my master's, and luckily one of the directorships for one of the education centers opened up, and I applied, and I was fortunate to get it. So I became the director of one of the education centers there for the community. And that was wonderful because I learned a lot and sponsored all the programs from high school all the way to PhD programs and brought in professors from all over. Just enjoyed it a lot. Mm. And then decided to go to law school after that. Oh, my. Yeah, I got bored. <laughs> now, are you still in Germany at the time? Yes. Uh. When I was getting bored and uh, the general at the time, at the, the last year of my stay there, the general had appointed me equal employment opportunity officer, which required me to start reading up on laws, federal laws, on equality mm-hmm. and, uh, and and discrimination and all that. So I became very interested in that law and that area. And one of my teachers that was working at my education center decided to go to law school. Mm-hmm. and got admitted to Baylor University Law School. And before she left, she said to me that I should think about going to law school. And I said to her, I don't think I'm smart enough to get into law school. <laughs> but a year later, after she was gone, I was standing there, sitting there, twiddling my thumb, saying, I'm getting bored, I need to do something else. Mm-hmm. So she had kind of planted the seed, I think. And so I decided, I think I'll come back to the States and go to law school. And I did, and I came back, and I went to law school. What law school did you go to? Uh, I went to law school here at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. Became a lawyer. Excellent, <laughs> excellent. And and uh, what year was that? I graduated in 1980. And got your your my law degree. And and you passed the bar soon after. I passed the bar in '81. Mm-hmm. I, I got a job in Washington D.C. right after law school, so I didn't have to pass the bar for a year. Uh-huh. Um, and I got hired. I was actually the first Hispanic woman lawyer hired at the Department of Transportation as a legal advisor there mm-hmm. in uh, in Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it was a uh, it was called the Hon- Honors Attorney Program, and there were seven attorneys. Honors attorneys selected from the whole United States. I think there were over a thousand applicants. 
And I was like, wow, I couldn't believe it. They selected me at the very, very, very Wow. It was a long process of going to different uh, levels of review. Mm-hmm. It was a wonderful opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. and just kind of see how our government functions. What did your job entail? Well, I worked for the Department of Transportation, and the first part of my work was uh, in research and development. And we worked with the transportation of hazardous materials uh, throughout the United States. All these trucks that carry stuff, you know, they all have to have codes on them. They have to, they have to comply with federal regulations. So we worked on that, and, I, and then I went, I switched over to the FAA part of it, the Federal Aviation Administration, and there I worked. It was during the time the controllers were striking, mm-hmm. and Mr. Reagan fired all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I worked with um, the, the FAA on FAA regulations, and I worked primarily with uh, violations of uh, Mexican pilots coming into Los Angeles <laughs> and, not, and not following which list. <laughs> oh. So how did you feel about that? <laughs> uh, I thought it was a bit comical and wasteful because it, it was a communications problem mostly. They They didn't speak. You know, they didn't understand English that well, and the comptrollers in, at LAX didn't speak Spanish very well. Mm-hmm. And so they would tell them not to do something, not to land at that particular time, and the Mexican pilots would land anyway, <laughs> or whatever. And they never had an accident, for mm-hmm. example, because they were very good pilots. Mm-hmm. But because they violated the federal law, they would get cited. Yeah. And I had to write the citations and, and quote the law that they violated. And one day, in Washington, D.C., I got to be friends with people from the Mexican consulate, the Mexican embassy, rather. So I asked them what happened to all these things because we had to send it to them, to the Mexican embassy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said they usually just tossed them in the trash can. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I, I actually became the legal advisor for the Mexican consulate years later when I came back to New Mexico from Washington and, and began to work on the border issues here with the, uh, the uh, undocumented people and crossing the border and being a little bit mistreated by the Border Patrol agents. And what who, um, what organization did you work for when you did I that? I was actually working for myself at the time, but I would be appointed um, because they were indigent. Mm-hmm. Indigent, and the federal court would appoint community lawyers from the community, and I would get appointed, and I began to file motions to um, on their behalf that um, the Mexican consulate I just noticed I was doing quite a bit of work, so they, they invited me to come and visit with them. Eventually, they appointed me as one of their legal advisors. So then I began to work with the, all citizens of Mexico that would come to this site, whether legal or illegal, mm-hmm. and and violate it in some way, or, you know. Mm-hmm. So it could range from violation of human rights, uh, constitutional rights, property rights, contract, uh, contracts, or whatever they got themselves into. Auto accidents, whatever. Now, what moved I, you? To, what I'm sorry, Beatrice. What moved you to to do that from what you were doing in D.C.? Well, D.C. was a D.C. was a, a very boring experience for me. I learned a lot, mm-hmm. but I didn't feel like it was. It was a very political situation there, and uh, when a citizen would ask a, a question, a, an important question. 
and I had to go, as a legal advisor, would go and research the law. I would write it, and then my supervisor would have to review it. And if they thought it was not quite kosher, you know, they would censor half of the stuff, and they didn't really want the public to know everything. Mm-hmm. And I felt like uh, that was not doing my work. Yeah. And, and to me, that was not good work. Right. And I wanted to work with... Uh, Really, I was more interested in human beings and, and human rights issues anyway. Mm-hmm. And and I had been since I had been exposed to the equal employment opportunity issues and all that. And um, as a law student, had gotten involved in a lot of rights, human rights issues, things like that. So that was really not my line of work. It was a very prestigious decision to have been chosen, you know, out of all these applicants. And it, and it opened the door, I think, for other Hispanic lawyers, but um, it was not worthwhile work for me. So I actually resigned that position early mm-hmm. and came and opened my own practice in New Mexico over here. Was it, and, hard, uh, was it hard getting started up? Well, what happened was I had done some work for legal aid in the, as a student in the summers mm-hmm. uh, here in southern New Mexico. And one of the summers I had actually uh, been taken over as a coordinator for the Farm Workers Center, for the Farm Workers' Rights. And since I had been a farm worker myself, I was kind of familiar with that whole arena. So they they hired me as a student to coordinate the Farm Worker Rights Center one summer. So I made some connections here. And when I was coming back, um, this lawyer heard I was coming back, so he asked me if I would go into partnership with him. So it really wasn't that difficult because I kind of had a, a foundation here, mm-hmm. and I got started and into private practice. Three years later, I went completely on my own. Mm-hmm. And in 1985, that was back in 81, 84. In 1985, I went completely on my own and opened my own law firm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and by that time, I had a good following. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I stick. I used to stick my nose everywhere, you know. <laughs> In all the community uh, community activities going on, things on the border, um, and so I, I had a lot of uh, uh, exposure, mm-hmm. public relations stuff going on all the time. Mm-hmm. So I, I I never really had a hard time getting clients. Mm. Yeah. Do you have a memorable case that you recall? One was probably the uh, sexual discrimination of police women mm. here in this town. So I took the first case of sex- sexual discrimination against police women. And that was a good case. It was a difficult case, but we changed the way that police women were uh, treated mm-hmm. and how they were evaluated. And just they, they are much more respected as a result of, I think, those kinds of cases. Mm. Because as a result of that particular case, the city rewrote a lot of their policies and begin educational programs for their police people. Um, So that was good in that sense. There was another case that was memorable to me because it involved an undocumented young woman who had uh, come across the border illegally. And she was only, I think, 17 at the time and and was pregnant and was distressed because she was pregnant and not married. And she came across to stay here with her aunt and, and really to have her baby here because that's what happens at the border. Um, 
during the night, this young woman, there was a drive-by shooting in that neighborhood. And the bullet happened to hit her arm. Uh, and they rushed her to the local hospital here. And the hospital did not want to treat her because she didn't have insurance and she was not documented. But what happened is she went into labor. Oh and she had the baby, so they had to take care of her. Mm-hmm. And they, they delivered the child, but they wouldn't, they didn't take the bullet out of her arm. Oh my God. Just wrapped the arm up and said, you need to go back to Juarez, Mexico and have them take care of it. Unbelievable. It was unbelievable. And what happened was my, uh, one of the young men that was renting some space for me was a criminal lawyer and he got appointed to represent the guy that did the shooting because they caught him. So he told me the story. And so I happened to be legal advisor for the Mexican consulate. So I called the Mexican consulate and told them about their citizen being hurt and shot at and not being treated at the local hospital. Mm-hmm. And there were some political ties too, because at that time I had become the first Hispanic woman to join Rotary International here. <laughs> <laughs> and the administrator of the hospital happened to be in the same Rotary International club as I was. Mm. So it got a little political, but they, they, they just wouldn't treat her. And finally, I, I called one of my good friends who was a reporter in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And I told him the story, and he liked the story, and he put it on the front page. Mm-hmm. And the headline said, Hospital takes baby out, but not bullet. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the administrator immediately called the lady, called the girl in. It all happened within a matter of days, all of this. Was, yeah. You know, they called her back in and took the bullet out. Unbelievable. And, uh, but I mean, ugh, those kinds of things. Yeah, it's crazy. So sad. Yeah, it really is. It really is sad. Yeah. Now, how long did you do this work? This kind of work. Well, let's see. Some I went on my own. Some uh, well, I actually did human rights work from '81 uh, to about '98 when I finally stopped practicing. Mm. Um, I stopped. I stopped my law firm in in June of '99, and then went into what I call freelancing. Then what do you mean? Well, I I decided to go and start uh, doing more training. Mm. Well, actually, I became a Baha'i in 1999. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me and about I that. Did, I I actually learned about the Baha'i faith in 1986 in the law library. Mm-hmm. I was uh, working on a case on a Sunday afternoon, and this big lawyer walked in there, huge guy, mm-hmm. and he introduced himself. And then it turned out to be he was a Baha'i, mm-hmm. uh, a faith I had never heard about, <laughs> invited me to his home, I began to study this faith, and I studied it and studied it and studied it for almost 13 years, and then finally became a Baha'i in 1999. So what was was going on for you those 13 years? What was going on? Yeah, for you, in in regards to your relationship with the Baha'i faith. Well, I I really, you know, sometimes it's so difficult to... um, Switch religions mm-hmm. when when you have been ingrained in one way, uh, and I had been raised in kind of a dual religion. Where my father was Catholic but not practicing. My mother was from the Assemblies of God, a real French Protestant mm-hmm. thing. They kind of controlled your life a lot. Everything was a sin. Mm-hmm. So I think that was so deeply ingrained in me that I just had a hard time um, 
understanding that some things really weren't sin, weren't mm-hmm. a sin. Like dancing really wasn't a sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just a creational thing or whatever. But anyway, it took oh. me a long time and I struggled a lot with a lot of the fact that I would ha- I would alienate my family mm-hmm. quite a bit. And, and, and it did happen, but eventually they had to get over it. Right. When you, uh, when you left home, what was your relationship to the religion you had grown up with? Well, when I left home, uh, I was a Sunday school teacher mm-hmm. in my high school years, you know, up to the age of 18, 19 when I left. And I would go to church three times a week. And when I came to New Mexico State, I found a church because my aunt also lived here and she was of the same religion. So I went to her church. And what was the relig- same religion as your mother? Assemblies of God. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Same. Same religion mm-hmm. as my mother. Mm-hmm. So I would do the same thing for about maybe half of the semester. Mm-hmm. And then at that at half of the semester, I began to break away because I began to learn from other students that there were other religions in the world. Like what? I'd, well, I had friends that were from India and they were Hindu. Uh... And I had friends, you know, from South America that were Indian people that had other kinds of belief systems. And I began to study. And I began to read about Buddhism and Taoism and just all kinds of things. And I began to, I went to the, to the Newman Catholic Center to Masses and, and to the Lutheran Church to, you know, and Presbyterian and Baptist. Mm-hmm. I began to just explore. Mm-hmm. I began to, to see different things in the world. Mm-hmm. So I broke away, actually, and didn't really participate in a religion for years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Except when I was in Germany, I did participate in a uh, in a non-denominational little church. Mm-hmm. and joined the choir there in Germany. Mm-hmm. But it was non-denominational. So after 13 years, what was it that made you decide to commit to the Baha'i faith? Well, after 13 years, what happened is I, I was here, it was um, September of 99, and I had closed my practice in July of 99, but I still had my office here, and um, I was uh, leaving a Friday afternoon, and this woman that I knew from before, um, Mary Lou McCrumacher, was a teacher at, at Doniana Community College here. She was driving up as I was about to leave my office, and I remembered her. She had been my son's math teacher. And I didn't remember that she was a Baha'i, but she was. Mm. And she said that she had been out of town several years and had just come back, and a thought of me had crossed her mind, and she had decided to act on her thoughts. So she came by to see if I was still here, and she just wanted to say hello. So she, so I invited her in my office, and we came back in and we chatted a little bit. And then she asked if I was doing anything this this Friday night, and I said I didn't know yet because normally on Friday nights I would go off with some friends. And she said, "Well, there's a there's going to be a talk in El Paso, Texas, down the road, about 30 minutes from here, at some friends' home. And I thought you might be interested in going. And I said, "Well, I don't know. Why don't you call me in about an hour? <laughs> I'll find out if I'm." If I have a date or not, you know. Mm-hmm. So she did. She called me in about an hour, and I didn't really have any plans. So I said to her, "You know, it sounds interesting. It was a it was a talk on the power of prayer mm-hmm. by a man named Jack McCann." Mm-hmm. And I went, 
and I heard, and I listened. It all made sense to me all of a sudden. Mm. It was tough on your parents when they found out you became a Baha'i? Well, by that time, uh, you know, it wasn't so tough on my mom uh, or my dad. It was my sisters. Uh. Three, three of the sisters that were very much ingrained. They, mm. they really. My, my father was always pretty open-minded. Mm-hmm. He never practiced his religion, and he loved people of all sorts, and he was extremely open-minded mm-hmm. about education. My mother, by that time, had become like uh, kind of disillusioned with her church. A lot of things happened, and she became disillusioned, so it was like um, she was a little bit concerned, but she thought it would be like a fad, and it was like, you know, because she mm-hmm. knew that I was always going, wandering around the world doing this and studying this and reading that. You know, in high school, I had read all about witchcraft, and at first she thought I was going to become a witch, and I was just trying to learn about the the trials in, 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 in you know, Salem. Boston and Massachusetts yeah. and, and the whole idea of why would they were burning women and this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But, but once she figured that I was just trying to learn not to become a witch, then she was okay. <laughs> <laughs> and she thought the same thing, I think, about the Baha'i faith. I was just mm-hmm. in a learning because she knew I'd been reading about it for a long time, I think, yeah. and so it to her. But my sisters were the ones that... And my dad passed away like four months later, and it was very sad because when I went to the hospital to see him, and I was praying very silently for him and touching, you know, him on the ankle, my sister, one of my sisters grabbed my hand and took it off and said, I shouldn't touch my father because I was this, I was, uh, this thing of the devil. Oh this, my God. this religion of the devil, and uh, and I was very happy for proud of my mother because she takes my sister out into the hallway and me too with her to behave, <laughs> and uh, and we get into a little discussion out there in the hallway, um, and I was very surprised at myself because as an attorney, and you know the old uh, pre Baha'i me. Would have been very nasty and argued and sarcastically, you know, put her down or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was like very patient mm-hmm. and just very <laughs> non-argumentative right. and thinking, knowing that this is the right thing to do, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's okay. And, and, and because you don't understand something, it's okay for you to react that way. It's all right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a very interesting transformation. Mm. Uh, for me to become a Baha'i. Yeah. Lots of people can tell you that when they knew me before. Now, Beatrice, what was the motivating factor for you to close down your law practice? I think that now that I look back, I think it was really part of a plan. Yeah. Because after 1999, um, and I had become a Baha'i, all of a sudden I had time in my hands so that I was able to go to Ghosh Baha'i School. I was able to go to, you know, Green Acre. I was able to go to um, uh, Llewellyn. Now these are, what, what's Green Acre and what's Llewellyn? Green, uh, Green Acre Baha'i School, okay. Llewellyn Baha'i School, the Ghosh Baha'i School. So these... I was able yeah. And to study and study the Baha'i faith mm. and deepen in the Baha'i faith mm-hmm. 
And uh, and so I think it was part of a plan, even though I didn't know it. Mm. And I think all of this was to, to deepen me, and so it gave me time in my hands. When my father passed away, it was very interesting because when my father passed away, he was flown by helicopter from Roswell to Albuquerque Hospital, and he didn't last very long. But while we were there those two days, um, I got a phone call from someone that had decided to send my resume to some Indian-owned company out of Ohio. As a result of him sending this resume, like 15 minutes after my father died, I get this phone call telling me that, that this person has decided to send my resume off to this company that's looking for trainers. And it turned out this company eventually hired me in about two weeks later because I, I had to go take care of my dad's funeral and everything. So I connected with them two to two weeks later, and they hired me on the spot to become a trainer for them on a huge contract that they had between the American Indians and the Department of Interior. And the person that developed the curriculum was a Baha'i. And the primary purpose of this training was to create unity between the Department of Interior and the Native American tribe, whose whose uh, uh, resources that they were, you know, managing as trustees, as federal trustees. And it was three years of doing this all over the United States, basically applying the principles of the Baha'i faith of unity and justice, all these things. Can you describe for me what the work was like, What you know, examples of what you did? Well, I, I would fly out on a Monday to perhaps like, uh, let's say, uh, Rapid City, South Dakota, and set up a training. And the training focused first on the law, the federal law, the uh, United States uh, Federal Trustee, the Fiduciary Act, which uh, puts the responsibility on the Department of Interior to manage the trust assets of the American Indians. And we would look at the law, so my law background came in handy. And then we would look at what were the barriers that were causing great division between the Indians and the Department of Interior, and what was causing mistrust. So there was a lack of trustworthiness there, and a lack of respect, and all these virtues that we were dealing with in the Baha'i faith were lacking there in this relationship between the Department of Interior. So we would focus on those and do exercises around all these different things and then we would focus on unity and justice and fairness and respect and these kinds of things. So the entire purpose of it was to uh, be able to create or recreate, actually, well, we don't know if it was ever there, but to to be able to create an environment where the American Indian people would be able to trust the Department of Interior trustees again because they had had such a, such a negative history with so much breach of contracts and breach of treaties and mismanagement of their uh, of their trust funds and things like that. So you saw progress? I did. We did a we did we did evaluations at the end and uh I think, you know uh, the people thought that it was good training for them and they were able to pick up skills that they could go out and apply to create and promote unity rather than to cause division. Especially in communication skills, the consultation process was introduced into this training, and we did 
good exercises around that. As a result of that, I created a parent education and training course for the court and uh, was contracted by the local courts here for four years, in fact. And uh, again, of a Baha'i inspired course with the consultation process and the whole principle of unity underlying it. So I did that for four years too. So the Baha'i faith really kind of uh, has been, you know, now a part of almost the 24 hours that I breathe every day. Yeah. Like, I just live it every day. Mm. And it's wonderful for me because I don't think I have ever enjoyed amidst amidst all the conflict that is focused on in the news media. Mm. I don't think I have ever enjoyed such peace in my life. Wow, that says a lot. And what are you doing now? Right at this very moment, I've been doing a few pro bono cases for people around here that need help. Mm-hmm. And I'm um, working on, uh, right now, incorporating a nonprofit, calling it the International uh, International Unity Building Institute. Hopefully this will be the birthplace of it here in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Focusing on um, training uh, using the moral leadership course model from Nur University, because I also took that course. Tell me about that. Well, I went to visit Nur University, actually, in Bolivia about three years ago, also. And can you tell me about Nur University? Well, Nur University is, of course, a Baha'i-inspired university, and working uh, with, you know, wonderful projects all over South America, really increasing the, the, I think, the economic empowerment of people there, especially the indigenous and specifically the women, assisting them to start small economic uh, development projects to help sustain themselves, and helping a lot of young, mostly Indian students that probably would not have the opportunities elsewhere. The curriculum is very much Baha'i-inspired, and the last time I talked to um, one of the instructors there over the telephone, they had just gotten a contract in Ecuador to go and train teachers. The Ecuadorian government had hired Nur University to go and train teachers in moral in the moral leadership project because they were very very impressed with the uh, with the results that they're getting with this moral leadership training. And I actually um, was hired by New Mexico State University two years ago to teach one of their graduate courses in for their doctorals and masters here uh, in education called public school law. And so I brought in a segment of the moral leadership training and the teachers really, really liked it. And uh, I brought and I brought in the consultation process into the into the graduate course too. So they really liked it. But I think this moral leadership is is so important because if if we're really going to progress as a as a world, as a as a planet we have got to start training our children to be moral leaders now, today. Right. And so I think that it's a wonderful course. And, and, and that's one of the things that I'm going to be putting forth here with this uh, Unity Building Institute. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm helping another friend that just went to Pioneer in Portugal. Now tell and, me about pioneering. What is that? Pioneering is when um, a member of the Baha'i faith decides to go to another part of the world 
where normally maybe not everyone knows about the Baha'i faith, or not very many people know about the Baha'i faith. Mm -hmm. And uh, as Baha'is, because we really don't go around, preach at people and convert them, but rather we teach by the way we live and by the way we function in our community. Pioneering gives us that opportunity to go and live and function in another community. And so um, many, many Baha'is choose to do that. And so these wonderful friends in El Paso sold their home in El Paso and are now in Portugal pioneering. But of course, because in the Baha'i faith, we don't have this concept of sending missionaries off that are supported by a local church or a group of churches. In pioneering, um, we have to support ourselves, so we have to find a way to make a living. And so my friends have started an import-export furniture uh, business. They've gone into um, partnership with a um, furniture manufacturing company out of the northern part of Portugal, the area that's called Duro. And uh, they have now got a sister office in Austin, Texas, so I've been helping them with that. And they've got a beautiful website now on the on, on the web. And so they'll be uh, dealing mostly with interior decorating, interior decorators to import these beautiful uh, pieces of, of uh, furnishings and art from Portugal, Italy, and Spain. And so that's been very exciting mm-hmm. to, to, to work with them. A little different for you. Yeah, it is different. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Although my father, my father and I ran a restaurant one time. Oh, really? <laughs> a little, and we had a little grocery store too. And I remember one time <laughs> that was when uh, I think we were in uh, Texas for a little bit. His store yeah. didn't last very long because he gave, he gave most of his groceries away on credit. Oh, and people sweet never man! Paid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it was an experience in running a business, you know. Right. So, Beatrice, what does the future hold for you? Most recently, I got remarried to this wonderful human being from England that should be here in about three weeks. He will be here in about three weeks. Congratulations. Thank you. He's a very, very Baha'i-inspired type of human being. Mm-hmm. So, And he loves traveling and enjoying the world and enjoying meeting people of all sorts. Mm-hmm. So I think what I hope, you know, I, I don't really ever know what's in the future because I kind of just, Pray a lot and say, you know, kind of, kind of give me some direction and guide me, and I'll go do whatever it needs, whatever needs to be done. But what I would like to do at some point is to go pioneering someplace. And one of the places was Chile, because of course I'm very selfish and I want to be there when the new temple goes is dedicated. Now tell me about uh, what do you mean? What kind of temple is it? Well, in the, in the Baha'i faith, there are only a, you know, a handful of temples around the world, and gradually a temple is built in a certain part of the world, and the next one is being built in Santiago, Chile, outside of Santiago, Chile, up on a, on a beautiful hill. When I went to the International uh, Baha'i Studies, the Baha'i Studies Conference in Canada, I met the young architect that designed this temple. And the Baha'i temples are designed in such a way that they welcome all religions of the world to come and pray and meditate within these, within their walls. So it's a very, I have visited the one in Frankfurt also. And so it, it's like a, a really wonderful structure that just opens itself to the world. 
and to uniting the world, really. And so it's, it's very exciting when you see another one, another one go up. But what is really impressive to me is that the architect that, that usually designs a temple designs it with lots of consultation. Consultation from the people in the country and in the community and consultation from lots of people to see that he's heading in or she's heading in the right direction. For example, the, the Lotus Temple in, in, in India. I mean, it's just, it's just so, so beautiful and, and, and represents the culture of the country too. And this young architect, when he was designing this particular temple, he had shared that he brought in children, for example, from the local schools to come and look at his model and to give them, him their impression of how, it, of how they felt when they saw it. And he brought the cleaning lady from down the, the hallway. And he brought, you know, the milkman and whoever was out there. And he would bring them into the office where they had this model of the temple. And he would ask for their input and their opinion and their feelings. And he took all these things into consideration. And I thought that was really wonderful because the temple itself has been built not just by one architect, but by the input of so many different kinds of people of all ages and of all backgrounds. Mm, that's sweet. Well, Beatrice, thank you very much for sharing your life with us <laughs> and for, for this interview. <laughs> well, I hope I get to meet you in person sometime. Yeah, I hope so too. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Beatrice Ferreira, a Baha'i from a migrant farming family who becomes a lawyer defending those less fortunate and disenfranchised. For a copy of this and other interviews, you're welcome to go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i perspective.